The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corollis, and you are listening in to Pa de Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 14 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Bonjour, and welcome to this week's episode. I can't believe that we are almost reaching our 50th podcast here on the Pod Chat Talking Dance Show. I've always loved landmarks, as I feel it is the best way to gauge how far you have come in any endeavor. It's exciting for me to see that we have almost produced a year's worth of content at this point. That's a lot of content on dance. (laughs) Some weeks it is easier for me to brainstorm topics for my shows and others, well, not so much. But no matter what, I still keep them coming. (laughs) But this week it didn't take really long for me to discover what I think we should be talking about. Uh, Before I rush forward to chat with you, I just want to remind you all that I am still teaching advanced beginner ballet classes every Friday through February at Broadway Dance Center in New York City. So please join me at 6 p.m. if you are looking to refine your technique and learn about all things dance in the classroom with me. All right, now... On to this week's discussion. (laughs) The other day, I had a magnificent opportunity to watch the recently released documentary on Ohad Naharin and his Batsheva dance company in Israel. The name of that documentary is Mr. Gaga. I think I've talked about it before in a few episodes. Uh, While I've never seen his company perform live, and I tried to see them this weekend uh, (laughs) in New York City, but they were sold out before I was able to get my tickets. Anyway, uh, so I haven't seen them perform live, but I've been obsessed with this man's work and have even found the time to take a few classes in his improvisationally stylized movement study. Uh, He calls this Gaga, and they actually have Gaga for dancers and Gaga for the people. So whether you are a dancer and want to try this, this, his way of moving, or if you are just somebody that maybe, I don't know, goes to yoga for fitness or likes to go to the gym and work out, um, anybody can really try his his way of moving, moving if you can find uh, classes in your area because it's very uh, – you have to take from somebody who's been certified and not just like a two-week teacher training certified type thing, but somebody who's been working with the man. Anyway, so the name of this movement is Gaga, hence the name of the movie, Mr. Gaga. The movie was beyond fantastic, and I <laughs> I watched it with goosebumps the entire time. Uh, and it gave me the same type of inspirational ache to press myself forward as a choreographer that I used to get when I was a teenager aspiring to have a career in professional dance. This movie had it all. It had dance, it had drama, art, trial, tribulation, politics, loss, and genius. There was also a bit of controversy in there because Mr. Naharin, being an eccentric and masterful choreographer, has less than conventional ways to get his dancers to move in his stylized works. 
At times throughout the movie, you might wonder which behaviors were acceptable and which were bordering on mental or physical abuse. And this really got me thinking that there's a conversation to be had here. Is there a line in a rehearsal studio where you're creating art that truly becomes abusive or is is there is it okay to have unconventional methods to really get across what you're trying to portray in, in a work that you're doing? So let's get going on this topic and see where it goes. <laughs> uh, while narrating the early stages of Ohad's work, the dancers spoke of many tense times in the studio. Whether shouting arguments that sprouted out of not being able to read Ohad's mind, or Mr. Naharin's shouting out to a dancer <laughs> mid-performance, you're boring me, <laughs> there are certain behaviors that may or may not be acceptable in a regular workplace, let alone a dance studio. The question here is whether this behavior is acceptable in a work environment or not when it involves creating personal art and trying to tell human stories and expose the most human elements of, of a, a person. There really is no simple answer here, but I still think that we should discuss this. Dance can be many things. It can be beautiful. It can be physically demanding. It can be ugly, animalistic, and jarring. It can be plotless. It can be political and divisive and so much more. It is, in my opinion, the most varied yet human art form on earth. And considering the vast content and demanding physicality of our art form, there is a massive range of physical and emotional work that needs to take place in order to convey a choreographer's vision to an audience. I hope that you agree with me. <laughs> so, with all of this said, is there a line that can cross into the territory of physical or mental abuse? In my opinion, the question here really is quite situational. Of course, if a choreographer slaps a dancer or touches a dancer in a sexual way that has nothing to do with the content of a work, that is clearly an abusive situation. Or if a director asks their dancers to rehearse into the early morning hours when they've been rehearsing since noon that day, there is clearly an issue at stake here, and the, the choreographer is just... Let, taking the advantage of the fact that the dancers are willing to rehearse way beyond any reasonable measure. But so many other situations that may raise an eyebrow elsewhere could be considered normal for a rehearsal process. For for instance, actually a really good example is if you're rehearsing Romeo and Juliet, I think that's always a great way to, to bring about this point. Uh, in Romeo and Juliet, there is obviously going to be a wide range of physical, sexual, and romantic actions that will occur in the studio in order to tell the, the story of young love, romance, heartbreak, all of these, these characteristics. Whether kissing, groping Juliet's breasts, or simulating the ecstasy of intercourse, a dancer is going to experience actions that would never, never, never ever be acceptable in most other work environments. Now, if a dancer is outside of a scene and their partner or choreographer or director or ballet master or mistress tries to perform any of these acts without asking to practice a section, this would be a bad situation. Or if a choreographer tries to show a kiss on a dancer instead of guiding the dancers performing the roles through a kiss, this could also be an issue. But 
There is also a confusing line with touch here because even similar partnering maneuvers like a press lift in any work, not just Romeo and Juliet, but in any ballet, any contemporary work, any modern work, uh, but a press lift, it requires the man's hands to be very close to a woman's crotch along her inner thigh. And if a lift were to, if this lift were to go awry, the man may end up actually touching the woman in a place that he wasn't planning on doing it, or maybe the the hand slips from the, her her rib cage up to her breasts. There, it's it's one of those things where they didn't mean to do it, and it but it's a hazard of our our art form and and practice in our art form. So, with potential physical abuses in the studio, there is a fine line, uh, and by and also physical and sexual abuse there. Um, but yeah, it's a fine line, and it's relative to what is happening in those rehearsals. Now, mental or emotional abuse can be much harder to define in the studio, and dancers seem to be much more willing to put up with the mind games that often occur in a dance studio. I don't know if this is due to training or uh, wishes to become the best artist that they can be, but dancers are really willing to put up with a lot in the studio that would never, never go in a, a typical workplace. It seems that dancers are willing to put up with more drama and tension in a studio if the person that they're working for appears to be a genius in their eyes. A wise friend of mine who is actually an extremely intelligent, well-established dance critic who just started a fantastic website for reviewing dance. I didn't even expect to do a little plug here, but check out dancelog.nyc <laughs> if you want to see what he's been doing. It's very new, and he's been doing some great work over the years for the Dance Review Times and New York Post and more, but uh, let's get back on topic. But anyway, a wise friend of mine, <laughs> he was talking to me recently about the 70s and 80s in dance, and he, he told me that most dancers were willing to put up with erratic, eccentric, unusual, and sometimes abusive behaviors if they felt that they were working with a genius. I think that's interesting because really nobody is truly a genius. It's They're only a genius if they are seen, one, uh, seen as one by by people around them, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so they're willing to put up with, with these uh, behaviors if they think that the person's a genius. And my friend, he told me that everybody in during this era in dance was trying to find a genius to work with. And if they felt that they had found that person, they would put up with whatever challenges were thrown their way just to be included in their process and their work. This was when Balanchine, Twyla Tharp, Mark Morris, Merce Cunningham, Paul Taylor, and many other choreographers were either emerging or in their, their heydays. This idea came around full circle when I was watching Mr. Gaga. Because he really began making work in New York City in the 1980s, and a dancer in the movie even stated that no matter the drama or explosions between Ohad and his artists in the studio, if the explosion even led to somebody walking out, the dancers always came back because they felt that his work was that important. How powerful is that as a statement? This whole conversation is really a testament to a few characteristics of a dancer. The physical demands on a dancer are agonizing. And I mean, I can tell you this. You can watch documentaries and see this. You can talk to other dancers and know this. 
But it also shows that their emotional aptitude is often just as strong, if not stronger, than their bodies. This idea also bleeds the truth about the innate submissive qualities of a dancer. Almost the idea of if you use me for greatness, you can use me however you wish, even if it's not in my best emotional or physical interest. This idea is especially difficult because some of the most beautiful, most human moments on stage occur when a dancer has been stripped down to their most emotionally raw self. So perhaps it is the responsibility of the choreographer to bring this about. And these moments of achieving that state may require extremely unconventional approaches. The final characteristic here is the fear and internal desperation a dancer has to experience the most full, valuable, and rewarding career by packing in as much work into a short period of time as one can in relation to other careers. For a career in dance is too short to waste any time looking for work because you didn't like the way you were being treated and you were constantly quitting jobs because you were mildly offended or mildly uncomfortable by the way that a, a choreographer, director, ballet master, ballet mistress were treating you. All of these ideas are cohesive with one another while also sometimes contradicting. A dancer needs to protect themselves and demand respect for the insane amount of hard work they have put into their art. But at the same time, if they allow themselves to be incredibly vulnerable and they're actually working with a true genius, that has true intentions in breaking a dancer down to create something deeply moving. They could experience things that very few human beings ever get to in their entire lifetime. For this reason, it is really in the hands of a dancer to determine what their own limits are in, in a studio and stage environment. This will be fluid and changeable throughout a dancer's career, but every dancer should know the moment that they need to put their foot down to protect themselves physically as well as emotionally. This can be more difficult for younger dancers who are freshly ripe and eager to please and just thrilled to have any job, but I feel the need to state that all dancers should look at their leader that they're working with and if they're feeling uncomfortable or that the studio environment is stressful and really truly toxic, they need to assess whether that is the place for them or not. I'll say this again to close this episode out. In Mr. Gaga, it was clearly stated how difficult it was to work with Mr. Naharin in the early stages of his career. But anytime there was an explosive argument in the studio, even if those dancers stormed out, they eventually came back. And look where the trust for this man's difficult and eccentric process has gotten him and his dancers. Their shows were completely sold out at the Brooklyn Academy of Music this weekend to my my disappointment, but that's really great for the company. Um, and when I went to go pick up my tickets at the box office in Lincoln Center to see this documentary, uh, right before me, there was somebody who tried to get a ticket and they said, they apologized and stated that there were no tickets left for the entire weekend of showing. And there were shows every three hours of, of this documentary. And I feel that this is really just a testament to how, uh, how this man's work has really become so popular and so relevant in the dance world today. The workspace of a dancer is no normal environment, and creating somebody else's vision of art may mean that you will encounter circumstances that are less than acceptable outside of a dance studio or a performance venue. 
it really is up to you to use your own judgment to decide whether a situation in the studio is abusive or a part of the sometimes raw stripping down of a dancer's layers to bring out the most humanly real moving artwork possible. This is really an interesting topic for me, and I feel like there isn't a ton of conversation out there publicly on this topic, so I'd really love to hear what you guys think about it, and maybe if uh, I feel that there is more of a conversation here to be had, um, or to sharing other people's experiences or other people's thoughts on this, um, maybe I can do another episode relating to this. So if you have any thoughts or any experiences, please feel free to send me them via my website contact page page at www.barrycorollis.com. Uh, I always spell that out for you just because my name can be hard to spell, but that's www.barrykorollis.com. And with that, I bid you adieu. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me via my website contact page I just mentioned above or before. <laughs> you can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcasts or to book master classes in ballet or contemporary technique for choreography or speaking engagements. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcasts on the Premier Dance Network. New hosts from your favorite dance companies are being added monthly. You can check that out at premierdancenetwork.com. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram where my name is B. Corollis, or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to subscribe to my blog, Life of a Freelance Dancer, where I have been writing about working as a freelance artist for over four years. I also have two YouTube channels, B. Corollis featuring my choreography and Core-ography, featuring my choreographic web series that tells the life-defining stories of professional dancers through revealing interviews and choreography. Thanks for listening in to Pod to Chat. I hope you return next Friday to talk dance with me. And remember to go out and support your local dance scene. Thank you.